I'm not leaving. <laughs> and he's gone. Feels closer than normal up here. Uh, pray with me. Pray with me. Please. Lord God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's uh, always great to preach in Door Hall. I love the size of this place, and uh, it's great to be back here with you. It's been a busy weekend. Uh, It's been a busy week here at St. Paul's. There's so much going on. As you notice, we've taken chairs up in anticipation of getting ready for the tea room next week. And in the midst of this busy week, I decided to take my day off on Wednesday instead of Monday. My daughter and son were in town for spring break, and we're in a very small house. And so Sue and I spent the whole week looking for ways to get them out of the house. And so I volunteered Wednesday, and we went to the beach at Camp St. Christopher. It was a pretty day like this. And we drove out there, and when we got to the camp and parked our car and got to where the cabins are, if you've been to St. Christopher, you know the cabins are right there between the sand dunes and the beach. Well, we got to where the cabins were, and there was a fog bank. And I mean, it was as clear as this right behind us, and in front of us was fog. And so me being the extroverted encourager, I said, oh, it'll go away. You know, it's 1030 in the morning. It'll burn off. At 2, it was still. We were just sitting in the fog, three of us, about this close together. Uh, and, we, you know, you couldn't even see. You couldn't see 50 feet down the beach. So people would come out of the fog with their dogs and like, oh, that's scary. You know, they'd walk that way. We did manage to get a sunburn, though, like people who aren't from this area. We didn't put sunscreen on. And we thought, oh, we can't get something. Anyway, we got sunburned. In the midst of the fog, what it did for our family, or the three of us at that moment, was it allowed for great conversation. It was kind of like being stuck in the car with your teenage children or with friends. Great conversation. And as happens often, at least in my life lately, my daughter got to a place in the conversation where she asked me a question about salvation. Who goes to heaven? Who gets to go to heaven, Dad? She asked me. She has asked that at the end of a long story about a friend of hers that she knew was in an active, sinful relationship, as she put it. And I said, well, honey, I want to remind you that we're all in active, sinful relationships. We're all condemned, we heard in the Ephesians passage. We're all condemned. Uh, but anyway, I tried, I listened, and, and in order to collect my thoughts, I said, well, there's an easy answer to who goes to heaven. It's right there in Scripture. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Most of you probably know it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess. So that's pretty simple. Just confess it, believe it, and those people that do that go to heaven. Didn't satisfy her. What about people who never hear about the gospel? You know, I love that one. What about the natives on a desert island? You know, I get that a lot. You know, they've never heard it. What about them? What about people um, who are mentally impaired? So she had all these other questions that snapped on to the end of this question. Um, And it reminded me that I used to think like that. I used to think like she thinks. Um, And it came out of a place in my heart that demanded justice. I wanted to be the one that condemned people, and I wanted to be the one that could say who was saved. And the thing that really bothered me was deathbed confessions. I even remember talking to my mother-in-law one time about it. She's here today. And I, I was so twisted around the axle about people who, like you guys, who come to church every week and do the right thing, Um, as compared to other people who just live their lives any way they want, and then on their deathbed, they get to say, okay, I believe, and they go to heaven too. It drove me crazy. I was like, that is so unfair. You know, I missed out on so many things because I was here at church. (laughs) I, I I wanted justice. I wanted my justice. 
I wanted my condemnation. And the funny thing is, the Bible's condemnation, the Bible's justice, is completely different. It's almost comical. It really is. The, the way the Bible talks about justice and condemnation, it's so countercultural. I mean, for instance, the prodigal son story. Two brothers, one old, one young, wealthy father. The young one asks for his inheritance, which in the Jewish circles then meant, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because you really don't get your inheritance until somebody's passed away. So what he says to his father is, I wish you were dead, so I had your money. The loving father gives him the money anyway, and he goes away and spends it like these people that I wanted to condemn on loose living. We know the story. He wakes up one morning in a pigsty, which is a funny thing for Jewish people. That would have caused all the Jews to laugh. (laughs) He's in a pigsty. Anyway, he wakes up in a pigsty, comes to his senses, Scripture says, and decides, you know what? I'll go back. I'll beg my father for forgiveness, and I'll work as a hired hand. I won't be his son anymore. I have so humiliated, I have so shamed him that I can't consider myself in his family anymore, but I'll work as a servant for him because the servants that work for my dad have it better than I do right now. So he rehearses this, I imagine, over and over in his head as he goes back home, and before he can actually confess this, his father, who's been looking, the scripture tells us, day and night for his son to return, races out to the end of the property, pushes the gates open, and starts to smother his son with kisses and hugs. He calls the servants and says, start the party. He gets the best coat he has and puts it on him. He gives him his family ring. His father welcomes him back at that moment into the family. Now, remember this. The boy never confesses to the dad. We hear his confession in Scripture, but it's before he gets to his father. When he gets to his father, he's so overcome by all the kissing and hugging, he never gets a chance to say, Dad, I'm sorry. But the father knows his heart. The father knows his heart. We just heard that a minute ago in the scripture. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. So I want to talk this morning about salvation. Who goes to heaven? I want to try to answer that question. And I don't know if I'll get there. I think what happens when I get to the end of the Gospel of John as I spend more time talking about the here and now. That's always the thing that perplexes me about people who want to know about getting to heaven is it seems like we should spend as much time worrying about getting to heaven as we do in the here and now, in the here and now. So what I wish I would have told my daughter on the beach about who goes to heaven is what an Anglican father, one of, the, one of the people in our history 500 years ago said. His name is Richard Hooker. And he's famous, most famous, in Anglican circles for the three-legged stool. I won't bore you to death with what each leg means, but that's what Hooker's most known for. But he said this, and I wish I would have had him standing there. I wish I could have quoted my daughter uh, uh, this, this verse from Hooker. Hooker says, God justifies and or saves. God saves the believing man or woman not for the worthiness of their belief. So it's not how they believe that saves them but for the worthiness of him in whom they believe. For the worthiness of him in whom they believe. We're saved by Christ. We heard this morning in Ephesians and we heard it in the gospel. We are saved by Jesus and Jesus alone. Or to put it another way, my favorite movie right now is Calvary. It's a tough movie to watch, a very difficult movie to watch. It's out on Netflix and it's out on Amazon. It's about a Catholic priest who comes to the priesthood late in life and The opening scene of the movie is him in a confessional. You can't have a good Catholic movie without a confessional. So he sits down in his priestly attire in this confessional, and the window opens, and there's somebody on the other side. You don't see who it is, and it's a man. And this man begins to describe seven years in his life where he was abused as a child by a Catholic priest. Yeah, and when you're watching it, that's the reaction you have, that dead silence. And he describes it in vivid detail. 
And now the camera goes back to this priest sitting on this side, and he's beginning to sweat. And a guy gets finished talking, and the priest says, what would you like for me to do for you? Because he's not that priest. The other man then tells him, well, there's nothing you can do. That priest is dead. But I'm going to exact my revenge on somebody who doesn't deserve it. I'm going to kill you in a week. And that's the way the movie opens. And so you spend the next hour and a half of the movie going day by day, these seven days, to the next Sunday when the movie climaxes. Anyway, he starts to tell people in town about this in hopes that he can discover who this person is on the other side before the end of the week. It's an amazing movie. But his daughter comes and visits him, and he looks at his daughter in one moment when she's telling him to leave. Go, Dad, run. Don't stay here. If this guy's crazy, he's going to kill you. Don't, don't do this, Dad. And he looks at his daughter, and this is the line he says in the movie. He looks right at his daughter and he says, the boundaries of God's mercy have yet to be established. The boundaries of God's mercy have yet to be established. Hooker says, but for the worthiness of him in whom they believe. We can't begin to know how merciful God will be to each one of us, to our family members, to those people that we worry about their salvation. God's mercy has yet to be established. So this question of who goes to heaven is not something my mother-in-law reminded me that I should even be worrying about if I have in fact confessed and believed. And Paul explains it beautifully in Philippians. He says, Jesus, who in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He left that throne room and came to earth, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. So therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and, giving him the, and given him the name. We heard that in the gospel, the name. Given him the name of Jesus that is above every name and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Our salvation, good news, is dependent on Christ and Christ alone. It's dependent on his action his emptying himself, his stepping down from heaven, kenosis, it's a Greek word, Christ emptying himself. We empty ourselves when we serve at the tea room, take time away from work to do that. When we help somebody, when we care for our parents, when we love one another, we're emptying ourselves. It's this emptying that saves us, but Christ's emptying. So the two readings today, the Ephesians reading and the John reading, both come together beautifully, both intersect beautifully in the fourth verse of Ephesians and the 16th verse of John. We all know John's 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son, into the world to save. Uh, this verse in Ephesians talks about how big and how merciful and how grand this saving grace is. There was a commentary that I read this week that talks specifically about God's richness of his mercy. And in the Greek, we lose a lot of it in the English, but in the Greek, what it looks like, the picture this commentary, commentator painted was that when we get to heaven, that there, and there are people already there, that there is this host of people worshiping God and that God is pouring out his never-ending grace and mercy in, in waves. And those waves are building on each other. Wave upon wave of God's mercy is building upon itself as people stand there and glorify God and reflect this back to him. So it's this twofold action of grace and mercy being stacked up and built upon itself that has started since the beginning of time and continues to go and will join that. I had this image of a football stadium, but here's the coolest part the commentator said. The angels in heaven are sitting on the sidelines or in the stands. God's creation, man and woman, 
is reflecting the glory, receiving the mercy, and then sending it back to him. And the angels are on the sidelines clapping and cheering and shouting. And uh, that song we sang this morning, I, I, maybe we'll sing the holy, holy, holy. I mean, I could just, I, that just gave me a picture of what that looks like. It's God's inexhaustible mercy and grace. Inexhaustible mercy and grace. So here's the deal. And this is a part of John we never really pay attention to. But for some reason, it jumped out to me this week. This is verses 19 through 21 that we just heard read. This is the verdict. I never even noticed that was in there. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men and women love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. We already stand condemned. That passage in John makes that very clear. The very beginning of what we heard today was about Moses raising up a serpent in the wilderness because these snakes that had been roaming around the wilderness had begun biting the Israelites because the Israelites had complained to God about being taken out of bondage. And so we are already stand condemned. Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world stands condemned. The world stands condemned. And like Jesus talking to Nicodemus about what you must do to receive eternal life, uh, the snake in the wilderness that was lifted, so must Christ be lifted up. So this point about the light, the light, the light, I couldn't let go of it this week. It's the light of Christ that attracts or repels us. And it's also the essence or presence of Jesus. And it justifies all who receive it. Now, I've been at the convention for two days, the diocesan convention. I know you're jealous. You can go next year. Two fun-filled days with lots of people in collars. And apparently, we like to hear ourselves talk. Because one after the other, they'd go to the microphone and have something to say and made the meeting go longer and longer. Anyway, some of the fun part of the convention was I got to hear two bishops preach. And they both preached out of Corinthians. They preached out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and specifically verses 6 and 7, about us believers being jars of clay, cracked jars of clay. And I really liked that. I thought, oh yeah, I've heard that before. But as I was preparing the sermon, it hit me. I grew up, went to Sunday school here, and I memorized the song, This Little Light of Mine. Remember that song? I'm going to sing a little, you can join in with me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, we're doing great, we'll stop. I imagine that little light of mine was a candle. It was a candle. This little light, it's a candle. Or, and when I was particularly feeling good about myself, uh, I imagined it maybe like a little fire pot. It was just like this little light of mine that Jesus has given me is this thing that I carry around. And it just glows and burns, and it's, it's big and, and perfect. Well, it is perfect, and it is big. But this little light of ours, we carry inside these cracked pots. Our cracked pots have big cracks. And those big cracks are the cracks of death and divorce and addiction and alienation and unhealthy families and people who've hurt us. Those are the big cracks in our jars that haven't quite sealed yet. Then there's little teeny cracks that have been sealed. Maybe they were big at one time and we've, we've pressed into the Lord and he's healed them. And so those cracks have gotten smaller. But make no mistake, the light inside of us can still work its way out of those cracks. So when we're at work, when we volunteer at the tea room, when we're playing in the praise band, whatever, we're walking around in these clay pots and people can see the light coming out of it. Sometimes we can really catch a glimpse of it because there's a big crack there. 
God uses those big ones to really get people's attention. Sometimes when you're cursing at somebody in traffic, it's a little teeny crack and it barely gets out. But um, nonetheless, the light is still there. This little light of ours, it shines whether we want it to or not. And thankfully, it shines through these jars of clay that we inhabit. And that's what allows God's plan of rescue and redemption to occur. So we stand condemned, no doubt about it. We stand condemned since Adam, Genesis 3. We stand condemned. Christ comes into the world to save us. And he's this big, powerful light. And we're either attracted to that light or we're not. And I know there are times in our lives, even as we have been saved and are being saved, that we tend to lean toward the darkness at times. Jesus welcomes us back to the light. But remember this, remember this. Jesus came to save sinners. We've already been condemned. We've already been condemned. Grab on to the truth of that word, brothers and sisters. Grab on to the truth about him justifying us, him saving us, and him giving us his light. Amen.